Welcome to another episode of Kinsider. I'm Chris Peterson. Today, I am joined by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. They are both co-founders of Double Elvis Productions. Brady also serves as president and executive producer. Double Elvis Productions, if you haven't heard the name, you've probably heard some of their podcasts. Disgraceland is one of the biggest music podcasts. It's won pretty much every podcast award out there as best music podcast. And you should definitely go listen to it if you're not currently listening to it. But they've also created a ton of other great content. They've both published books. There's a whole lot to dive in here, too. So, Jake, Brady, welcome to Kinsider. Right on, man. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. You got it. If you guys wouldn't mind, maybe just give the high-level overview, expand on maybe what I said a little bit, and just how you guys got here from creating Jake. You started with Disgraceland, and now you've got a full production company that's working with basically every major platform. Yeah, this whole thing was really just born out of necessity. Disgraceland was a show that I created in 2017 and launched in 2018. It's a music and true crime podcast, the first, and as far as I know, the only of its kind. It immediately took off. It immediately developed a massive following, largely through Apple Podcasts at first. And with the growth of Disgraceland, what I thought was just going to be like, me in my base, like literally in my basement, making a podcast and experimenting with my friend Sean, who's in the booth next door right now, engineering <laughs> this for us on our end, quickly turned into a vehicle for other opportunities to produce other podcasts. I was quickly being approached by networks about doing slate deals and other concepts. And it became evident to me early on that I needed some help on the business side. And thus, I partnered with my old friend, Brady Sadler here, who came in and we created Double Elvis as the shingle to put all of the shows under Disgraceland and everything else we produced. We started with 27 Club, Blood on the Tracks, which were a couple of shows that I've hosted. And we've since branched out to produce a bunch of other podcasts that other creators now host as well. Yeah, I think we at iHeartRadio were probably one of the first calls to say, let's give this guy a slate deal because the quality was that good. And immediately, just as so many people have become fans, I was first and foremost a fan of that podcast and everything you guys have done since, of course. I'm going to go ahead and just uh, reveal some secrets here. You told me at a dinner recently that you called two podcasters from the beach when you were on vacation and I was one and Will Ferrell was the other. So <laughs> yeah, good company. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were with iHeart at the time. You were one of the first. But certainly we had opportunities from a bunch of folks we were talking to, and we ended up doing a deal with iHeart, a distribution deal for Disgraceland. Since then, we've moved on. We're in a deal now for Disgraceland with Amazon Music, but we have shows still at iHeart and we're producing content with a bunch of the other players in the audio space and we'll continue to do so. Yeah. And we'll get to that because I think that's a really interesting just approach that you guys have. But I want to talk about why audio specifically and why you're leaning so hard into audio versus just saying, we've got great content, let's go create everything under the sun right now. You guys still are an audio first company. Yeah, I'll take a brief swing at this and then I'll let Brady talk for a minute because he can probably do this more eloquently than I can. But for me, it's just, that's what I grew up in. I grew up in music. I created a podcast because quite frankly, I needed a creative outlet and I was hoping that that creative thing that I made would lead to a job in audio. I didn't think the creative thing would actually become the job, which it did and which of course I'm grateful for. But for me, it's just like, it really wasn't another answer. It's since turned into other things. Like I published a book called Disgraceland for Grand Central Hachette. We've done a live tour. We have 
multiple television shows, television concepts in development right now. So we are moving beyond audio in our own way. But like I said, for me, audio is just sort of the only choice. Now, Brady here can give you a much more strategic answer than that. (laughs) So I'll let him get into that. Yeah, I do think it starts with the creative. And in this case, when we made the decision to go all in on audio, it was a medium that provided a lot of opportunity. There was a lot of space to experiment and innovate and credit to Jake for the concept here. And everyone told him that he was crazy to try to tell stories about known talent without having the rights to the music. And of course, that became a bit in Disgraceland and he had some fun with that and leaned into that. He took a chance and sure enough, the audience responded and he found a clever way with his experience in music, but also sort of the savvy strategy in terms of how to do that and bringing in all these other artists, which to this day is a big part of our strategy in business. We work with artists. Almost everyone in the company is a musician, certainly a huge music fan. But I think that is infused into how we do the creative, but also as a startup, how we scrap and build and think creatively about what we're doing. The industry has obviously evolved a lot in the few years that we've been doing this. And it continues to be really exciting in terms of just how much room I think there is for experimentation and for the format to continue to evolve, not to mention all the different businesses and players who are in the space. So that's why audio first. And as Jake said, hopefully that continues to lead to a lot of other opportunities. But being rooted there has certainly been an advantage. I feel lucky to be in this space at this moment and to not be fully rooted in a different, maybe more glamorous medium like television or film. I mean, we have the opportunity to create and we have created really lasting, strong relationships with audience and with community. If I was running a television show, right, I was a showrunner, I don't have that direct line like I do in podcasting. And there's also such a quick path to creation where I can wake up on a Sunday morning and go, okay, the Astroworld debacle just happened. I'm going to write and produce a podcast in the next five days and release it to the world. We don't have that opportunity in other mediums like we have in podcasting. And you know, I was talking to a fellow podcaster recently, and we were both just like, God, damn, this is the best space to be in right now. And I don't see that changing in the years to come. Totally agree. And I would say also on the community aspect, you guys are playing around with Twitch. Talk about how that has helped you engage with your community further and also just help build your audience of people that are consuming your content. We were in Miami a couple months ago and we were down there doing meetings and Brady was sort of laying out this concept about how you can get in at certain networks at certain times and you can really grab audience space quickly before the algorithms game everything out. So we decided at that point, okay, well, we're going to go to Twitch because we need that sandbox anyways. We're creating so much content outside of like so much promotional content, so much ancillary and bonus content, stuff that isn't heavily scripted podcasts. So it became our idea to just create and this live sandbox in Twitch gives us the opportunity to do that. We're still figuring out as we go, but it's been awesome. And frankly, it's been a lot more exciting for us than having to just go off and do it in silos like we would have in a sort of web 2.0 way. But I don't know, Brady, do you have anything to add to that? I, I love how we can almost road test concepts in that medium as well. And it feels 
really raw in a great way where audiences can engage, people can get to know you and the other talent that we work with in a way that just doesn't happen in the traditional RSS feed of podcasting. So it's proving to be beneficial in a lot of different ways. And it'd be exciting to see how we keep evolving that. But we're always looking at the things that might complement that core feed and podcast content. I think this is just one of a few different things that we're going to be experimenting with in order to, at the end of the day, have that base of fans that's the core of what we do and the launching pad for anything. Yeah, we have a strong audience. It's growing, it's continuing to grow, but we have this desire to kind of be everywhere all the time. And that's a challenge when you're a small company like we are, who's wholly focused on the creative. But it's one that, frankly, we're not afraid of. Yeah, it also adds value to anything that we're going to launch in the future from a podcast, TV standpoint, et cetera. When we're talking to partners and platforms about new content, the ability for us to say, yeah, we're going to take advantage of all of your resources and all of your channels, but we're also going to be able to seed this into our community to start with. It gives us a head start. Yeah. Plus, it's like I said, I hate to keep going back to it, but it's fun. It's allowed me, you know, I'm talking on Twitch today with actor Justin Long. I was talking to an actor who played Ozzy in the Netflix dirt movie, Tony Cavallero, on Twitch a couple weeks ago. We've spoken to John Stamos, Dan Patrick, others. It's just sort of like created this other sandbox where we can create in a way that is different than just like Brady said, the standard RSS format of podcasting. And also, obviously, all the names you just mentioned are completely diverse to, to the kind of content that you might be pigeonholed into with a certain series. What I've found is these guys, like Dan Patrick, I start talking to him and and he wants to talk about sports. And that made sense for us to do because we have this series called Sportsland, which is basically Disgraceland, but instead of music and true crime, it's sports and true crime. We get to the end of the interview and all the guy wants to talk about is music. He wanted to talk about that Who show in Cincinnati in 1980 or 1979, whatever it was, when eight people died or 11 people died. We found that people want to have these music conversations, even if they're not musicians. And Twitch is a way for us to kind of mess around with that. And it's been a lot of fun. And you mentioned the sports podcast, and I'm realizing that I did exactly what I didn't want to do is pigeonhole you guys as just a music podcast company, because that's not the case at all. It was maybe founded on that. And you do focus on that for some of your series, but it's much more than that. Yeah, music is our bread and butter for sure. It's where we're all coming from. It's in all of our DNA, but we're huge culture fans, of course, and that includes sports. And I'm a massive sports fan. I've been hearing from the audience. Like, this is the thing too, like good creatives need to listen to their audience. And from day one of Disgraceland, it was immediate. It was like, when are we getting the Hollywood version of this? When are we getting the sports version of this? So we waited until we had the team in place where we could actually scale out these other ancillary podcasts that are still kind of under the same Disgraceland shingle. And that's Sportsland and that's Hollywoodland. And there may be some other spinoffs as well. But yeah, I mean, it's mainly music focused because that's what we know. and That's what we feel like we're really freaking good at. But we're, we're going to be experimenting with other culture plays throughout 2022. One through line that also carries out is this idea that a lot of our content has well-known characters and artists and folks in culture connected to it. We've been thinking a lot about that and strategically, it's really cool to see so many new platforms get into the space because we think about where our content fits in that. And as you see content 
like music and podcasting start to coexist in some of the ecosystems and on different platforms and even audiobooks or physical product start to be bubbling up in the same areas. It's really cool how you can think of our content as potentially a bridge or an on-ramp to so many other products or content. I think that for us, as we continue to build this huge library of episodes connected to known individuals, there's a really neat place where that can sit and potentially be a really interesting asset for our partners. Yeah. In 20 years, when some 17-year-old Googles Rolling Stones at Altamont, the search results are going to include Beggar's Banquet from that year. They're going to include the Maisel Brothers Gimme Shelter movie about Altamont, and they're going to include the Disgraceland episode on Altamont as well. And with everything we're doing about every subject, big name subject, we're hoping to have that effect, that sort of long tail effect into the future. You mentioned working with all these platforms, and I think that this is something that's a little bit unique for you guys because you have worked with many of the platforms and pretty much all the major platforms creating content, some exclusive, some partnerships. Talk about that and how that separates you guys from the standard podcast operation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we like all of our partners. That's really it. We just kind of work with people we like, and we've been lucky enough to be able to work with some of the biggest ones. And we kind of have this diversified approach where we have some content parked at one network for a certain period of time, and then at another network as well. We benefit from their different promotional and distribution efforts. So far, so good. It's really allowed us to be able to be self-sufficient and reliant. We haven't had to raise a lot of money at all. We've sort of just been doing this on our own with our own revenue and our own partnerships. It's allowed us to be nimble, stealth, and kind of grow at the pace we want to grow at, which is fast. It's been beneficial to be able to test out different partnerships, see how content performs in different environments. And everyone has a little bit of a different approach to it. So we're learning mm -hmm. a ton every step of the way. Long term, I don't know what exactly that's going to look like and whether that'll continue to be the case. But for now, it's definitely giving us an edge. And it's really cool to see how all the different folks are operating. At least a handful of times you've partnered with other podcast producers like Audio Chuck, who creates Crime Junkie. Tenderfoot and others. That's also pretty unique, I think, in the way you guys are thinking about those partnerships. What benefits do you see with partnering up with quote unquote competitors, you know, in some sense? Mm. Yeah, it's mainly to just steal all their best ideas and use them <laughs> for our own wicked ways. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's kind of a, just a different version of what Brady just said, where it's one plus one equals three or whatever that cliche is. You're talking about Ashley Flowers from Audio Chuck, who we partnered with for Armored. Ashley is, you know, next to Joe Rogan, quantifiably, I think, the biggest podcaster on the planet. We're lucky to be able to partner with somebody like that. Obviously, it grows our creative chops. Hopefully, it grows theirs as well. But it also opens us up to another audience as it opens them up to another audience. Same with Payne Lindsay and working with Payne on our show Dead and Gone, which we created with Tenderfoot TV. It's the same concept. We like those guys. These are all folks, you know, we're at the same events. We've done like cross promo stuff together in the past. We've met them. We've hung out with them. It's only natural. It's like Keith Richards saying to Pete Townsend or John Lennon, like, come on over to this rock and roll circus thing. You know, we're trying to collaborate. By the way, I didn't mean to just compare myself to Pete Townsend or Keith Richards, <laughs> but I was just <laughs> talking about the Stones. But yeah, you're just, it's organic. It's like, let's work on some shit together. It's a way to connect and socialize when connecting and socializing isn't really a thing we, we've been doing over the past 24 months. 
from a creative perspective, it also gives us a chance to just try things that we wouldn't necessarily do on our own. And while we have some proven formulas that we're absolutely continuing to build and fine tune, we still want to experiment. We don't want to lose that edge. And so bringing together an investigative style of a tenderfoot with a more narrative, highly produced style like Double Elvis, we can create something that just has never existed and see how fans react, see how partners react, advertisers, et cetera. It's still pretty interesting how the podcast community is still a community. And I feel like the only real competitive side I see in it is the platforms between them trying to get audience and own the audience and content. But from the creator perspective, I don't hear anyone say like, well, that's a competitor. We're trying to fight for that audience. It's still all about growth mode for everybody. Yeah. And there's definitely a sense of camaraderie in the community as well. And we felt some of that pressure on the network side, but comparatively to the way things were in the past and other entertainment mediums, it's nothing like it was. They have to be respectful and they have to create lanes for the creatives because let's face it, without the creatives, there's no creative. So it's necessary. Yeah. Jake has his head in research so much and he's writing so often about these classic stories of artists and in many cases, their business deals. It's really fun for me when we'll be working on a new contract and Jake will bring up some wild experience that went down 20 years ago and these moguls that used to just throw their weight around in insane ways. You've got quite a few of those good stories. Yeah. But on the flip side, history is littered with musicians and artists who were, at least from a business standpoint, insecure about things. You know, an artist is naturally insecure. (laughs) They're overly emotional and they wear their emotions on their sleeves. And I feel like at least in the business history of music, business people have taken advantage of that. I read about it constantly, but there are those rare exceptions with folks like I'm not judging their character in a way that I think was good or benevolent in any way. But if you read how the Eagles handled their business comparatively to other musicians or the way that the Stones have, at least from the midpoint of their career on, John Lennon, you start to see creatives really taking the power back and knowing their worth and knowing what they can and can't do in partnerships. And it's for sure given me a certain perspective. Yeah. And as well as your own experiences as an artist, having been signed to a major label, having gone through the ups and downs of that creative life. When I met you, you were still doing some of that music, but you were also doing a lot of stuff in business and taking some of those practical lessons. It was one of the things that I was most impressed with, you know, when it came to working with Jake in terms of his ability to balance those things and to bring those two sides. And that's unique in terms of creatives. I think it definitely continues to impact the way we operate to this day in terms of building infrastructure and process and surrounding ourselves. We've grown, we're about 16 people now, knowing we need to have all-stars at every position and everything super buttoned up while still leaving a lot of room for, like I said before, creative experimentation and putting that creative in the artistry first. That's something that we're super proud of. We talk about this all the time. As much as I love the rock and roll shambolic mess that is Keith Richards, I also love Barry Gordy and the factory he built at Motown. And that has been a goal of ours from the beginning. As soon as we started producing other podcasts, it was like, okay, how do we do this with a process that is going to save us as much time as possible and money and be as efficient and not lose the creative? That's Barry Gordy, man. That's all those great Motown songs. They're templatized. I'm not trying to say that they're devoid of emotion or anything. They're not. They're incredibly impactful. 
But he was able to bank that stuff out in the same way that Ford was banging out cars down the road in Detroit. And we're trying to do that. We're trying to build a little podcast factory here. And I think thus far, we've had some success with it. The way that these platforms and others are thinking about deals and structures, I would assume that you've seen quite a bit evolve over the last few years as the industry is evolving. Have you seen anything more favorable to the creator or how do you view it? I think it's a little bit different everywhere and it depends on where that creator or studio is in their evolution. So it's really not a one size fits all by any means. And my only advice to anyone who's in the position as a creator or studio looking to move into the space or grow in the space is to talk with as many people as you can and try to look for that fit because the platforms all do offer a little bit of a different strategy and certain content might fit one place better than another at that point in time. And you guys also don't have an ad sales team, which I think is pretty unique. Why not? Why aren't you selling your own inventory or what's the thought behind it? So we've been doing it through our partners so that we could focus on content. It's interesting when we got into the space, I have a background in advertising. Jake's done some different things in advertising and working with brands and connecting artists and brands has always been something that we've both been passionate about and trying to figure out how to do that while not losing the autonomy of creatives. I don't think anyone's really figured it out perfectly. But in this space, when we first got in, a lot of it was at the encouragement of Jake Shapiro now at Apple, a pioneer in our industry and and someone who's been an advisor and supporter of ours. And he said, your aptitude when it comes to advertising is going to be a strength in this space, whether you lean into ad sales and have a formal team that does that or just the ability to think about that in the context of, hey, someone's going to have to monetize this content. So how are we going to position it and how are we going to be friendly to that side of the business? So no, we, we don't sell our own ads. Partners do that for us, but we're very mindful of the fact that that's key to how we're able to create the content, how we're able to build the company. So we do think about it a lot. We do arm our partners with materials. We're constantly doing ad reads and sponsorship fulfillment. And I think that's where that blend of creative and business comes back because Jake will have a lot of fun with ad reads. And if he believes in the product, he'll talk about how it impacts his life or his family. That at the end of the day resonates with the audience and it creates a better return for the advertiser which is a fulfilling cycle that continues. That's kind of the way it's done in other mediums, right? If you're a production house, you go to Netflix and you say, hey, you want to buy this or go to network TV and then they would sell the ads for you versus just trying to do it on your own. The model's there for film and other mediums and most podcast companies just aren't doing what you guys are doing. Yeah, and, and we've talked about the fact that that's what's right for this stage. And at some point, if all of our inventory was together and we did have a little bit of a different scenario, there'd certainly be a lot of opportunity and upside to, to be had there too. This is the path that's proved to be beneficial for now. And we have great relationships with all these partners and it's a balance between how we can help support them and how we can get to create more content. And then bigger picture, you've hit on some of the other derivative IPs and tours, books, things like that, and, and selling some of the audio projects to become TV, film, etc. Where do you see that 
in like the next two to three years, how big of a part of your overall revenue for Double Elvis will be from those derivatives? We are working on a diversified approach here just based on the opportunity. And it's a mix and it'll continue to be a mix of a straight audio podcast, RSS, film and television. Those opportunities continue to come our way. They're very slow and they involve having multiple balls in the air at the same time, which we've committed to and we're doing. But there's other areas to expand as well with audio. You're going to see moves from us in the next 12 months internationally, locally, in the live space. These are all areas that we are set up to crush in just based on the staff that we've put together and the talent that we have in-house. And frankly, there are areas of the audio landscape that we're curious and interested in. So it's a natural fit for us to expand in that direction. Where do you think the biggest opportunity of the new areas that you're going to be testing, where do you think the biggest opportunity lays for you? I think it's a mix of, you know, maybe or maybe a toss-up between international or local. Those are two completely opposite things. So I'm really hedging there. <laughs> <laughs> we obviously pay a ton of attention to the streaming wars and everything that's happening in television, the waterfall effects that that's having on the value of content and the value of studios like ours and others. And I look at the Squid Game phenomenon and the way that IP is traveling around the globe, which it's never done before to this degree. And I get really excited about what some of our franchises might be able to accomplish as we start to expand out internationally. And we're starting to see some of those other territories are starting to have that hockey stick growth the U.S. has experienced. It's obviously a little bit delayed, but you're starting to see that. And and so I would agree the opportunity in many of those markets could be just massive. For sure. For sure. And that's where the factory comes into play. So... I think I would also like to just get your take on where you see the industry. I do think that there's a world where high quality content will get value from the platforms. And that could mean that you guys are licensing your content to multiple platforms. ESPN's on a lot of different carriers, but they pay Mm. for that content. But it could also just be Spotify, Sirius, iHeart, just going and buying more content companies and they own that for their own distribution or however they want. What do you think is going to happen in the space? I feel like this is something we should be asking you. <laughs> I feel like from my perspective, I have a bunch of thoughts about this to your question. One, we haven't seen a podcast in the last 12 months really kind of break the internet in the way that a handful of podcasts had in the years prior between Serial and 2020. So I don't know. I mean, maybe we're being so flattened out that it's hard for certain IP to break through and really make an impact. I don't know how much COVID affected that. Part of me wonders, you know, we're in an exclusive deal for Disgraceland with Amazon, where it's the only place where you can hear all the episodes. It feels to me like that's potentially going to be a play in the future. We're not quite there yet, but I could easily see waking up in three years and being like, well, if I want to listen to these three podcasts, I have to do it on this network. And these three I have to do on this network. Similar to how we consume television. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Brady, what do you think? I don't have a guess as to that. I just think we are going to see audio continue to proliferate. And when you think about smart speakers and the way that audio can be in our lives and complement other activities that we have, what the AirPods did to revolutionize that access to audio, interactive audio seems like a no-brainer to 
become more of a factor. Jake touched on live, local. I just think audio in general has a lot of runway to go. And that's good for all these scenarios. Couldn't agree more. I love it. Well, guys, look, I think it's great. And I think you're in a great position either way, whichever way the industry goes. And then obviously everything non-audio you're creating will continue to increase in value as well, I think, more rapidly than not. So congratulations on all the success so far. Look forward to continuing to watch you guys grow and listen to what you create. Thanks for joining us on Kinsider. You got it, Chris. Thanks, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for, for all the content that you all are creating at Kindred and Lion Tree. Read my newsletter every week and keeps me up to date on a lot of these trends. So it's great to chat with you. Thanks, guys. See you, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Kinsider. If you like this episode, please hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to podcasts. If there's an option to leave a review, that'd be great. For Kindred Media, I'm Chris Peterson. Talk to you next time.